Well, hello, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm going to go ahead and try to move this over here, if that's okay. Just one moment. Well, as you all know, I, uh, Pastor Bob kind of mentioned how I moved here. And I moved here from Tennessee. And so it's just a huge honor that Pastor Frank, um, Pastor Bob, Pastor Dave, everyone who's poured in to help me, to pray for me, to pray for this message. Um, it's a huge honor. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone who's spent time um, praying for me this week. Well, I was homeschooled growing up, and from a young age, I struggled to pronounce my R's. So you can imagine a kid who's homeschooled, a kid who struggles to pronounce his R's, and now is in the public speaking. So how confident must I feel, right? Well, here's the thing is, when I say that I struggle to pronounce my R's, what I mean is, if I told you that today I saw the coolest looking bird, you wouldn't be able to tell if I said bird or board, as in like the wooden plank. And so... Earlier this week, I called my friend, and we were talking, lifelong friend back in Tennessee, and we were reminded how I used to struggle and how funny it's not going to be preaching and whatnot, and, and he reminded me, people used to come up and always say, Stephen, do you have an accent? And they'd be like, man, you sound British or something. And what they didn't know is I had a spacer in my mouth because I had crowding in my teeth, and so I would respond, I don't have an accent. I just have a space wall in my mouth. And they'd be like, what, what did you just say? So, yeah, it's just this, this whole thing of, of being like, oh, great, and I'm going to go talk to a bunch of people, and I'm sure today throughout the course of this time I have to speak, you're going to hear, you know, me mispronounce an R, so I apologize. I promise you I'm not from Britain. But anyway, so my friend ended up reminding me, though, because he's a great friend, that, you know, Moses also had a speech impediment, and yet God worked through him, and God used him to speak on behalf of Israel to Pharaoh. Now, you might think, oh, I bet we're going to go into this message about Moses coming before Pharaoh, and we're going to read that passage, but to be honest with you, as I've been praying, as people have been praying for me, the, the passage God has led me to it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. And if you have your Bible, I'd love to meet you over there in that passage. See, I'm going to try to give some context here. The author of this, of this letter to the Corinthian church is Paul. The audience is the Corinthian church. But it's also all of us because 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. So this scripture is also to us, and, and I pray that the Lord uses this to, to speak to us how he desires to. Now, this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. In chapters 1 through 5, Paul kind of goes through and reinstates some things he tells his church hey i love you he tells his church hey timothy and i timothy was a student of paul and the word of god and he says we we only preach christ and christ alone we don't want to preach anything else but jesus and so he goes through and in chapter six you get to this part where, where paul starts to kind of dig at some issues that are occurring in the church and he addresses them and then we're going to pick up in chapter seven verse eight and this is towards the end of that address in chapter six and it's also when paul is giving us insight to how he felt about his first letter to the Corinthian church. Because you see, Paul didn't know what happened. He waited for a man named Titus to come. And so this letter takes place after Titus came, gave him the update. And so that's where we're going to, to pick up today. But first, before we do that, I'd like to just go ahead and pray for God's word um, for this time we have to be together and, and congregate together as believers under the banner of Christ. So if you please pray with me. Dear holy God, we come before you today realizing it's not by our own deeds. It's not by any way that we can earn the right to come and stand before holy God, to gather together, to be unified through the blood of Christ. It's not anything we did. God, it's simply by your grace. It's simply by your mercy and by your great love for us that surpasses understanding. God, I pray that right now you please prepare my heart Prepare my spirit, prepare the people who are listening today, prepare their hearts and their spirits 
to not receive anything I want to say or my own ideologies, but God, just to receive your word. Would you command us as your people who claim you as, as their Lord? God, I understand that you can take my breath away at any moment. I don't, I don't even have to finish a sermon. God, I pray that all of the breath you give to me, all the breath you give to everyone, we would simply give it back to you in praise. Thank you for this time, Lord, that we have together. Use it how you desire to. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. So verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did. I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. What does Paul mean by even if I made you grieve with my letter? Well, church, he's referring back to 1 Corinthians, which is, which is the first letter he sent to them. And what do we know about this letter? Well, we could go ahead and we could read all of 1 Corinthians, which might take a while. Or we can go ahead and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And feel free to do that. I'll read it up here. But basically, Paul gives us the context of what we need to understand. See, chapter 2, verse 4 says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You see, Paul understood what he wrote was going to probably make them feel like they... Like he might not even love them. And so Paul's saying, I understand this is going to feel convicting. You're going to understand you might, you're going to be in some sin. And this is going to require change on your half in order to be obedient. Paul is not simply saying these things to him out of an ill intent to bash him, to make himself feel superior. You see, Paul, Paul is trying to write to them because he loves them. However, it's important though to note when Paul says, um, when Paul says that he regretted because he made them feel sad, it's not that they were actually sad that Paul regretted the letter, right? The reason why he was he regretted it is because he thought they felt sad and nothing happened. And so, and so we're going to to continue on here. But actually, let me go ahead and describe this first. Sorry about that. Let's think about this. The relationship of Paul, and, and sometimes in the word, it's described as feeling sorry. If they're feeling sorry, and it's kind of this ideology that as a parent would look at their child and the parent would say, hey, little Jimmy, man, you got a cut on your arm, you got to take care of that. And little Jimmy would look at him and say, no, I'm not going to take care of it. And the parent comes back and he says, Jimmy, look, you got an infection on your arm and you could fill with all sorts of bacteria in there. It could swell up. And to be so honest, that infection could actually lead to your death. Well, the child starts to ponder what it would take to actually clean out that infection and the child chooses, no, I'm not going to do that. I have to get peroxide. Then I have to maintain how well the cut stays. And so the child just decides, no, I'm not going to do that. And see what happens is a tension comes between the parent and the child. The parent is like sad. And it's like, man, like, why won't you just change? And the child then starts to feel sad because then they know what they're doing is wrong. And it's this kind of ideology that we see how this is how Paul sort of felt towards the Corinthian church. He regretted he made them grieve because he thought it didn't lead to any fruit in their grieving. So continuing on in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. Notice here that Paul's relief of regret and his reason to rejoice is that their grieving was unto repentance. 
Now, no one repents without realizing they're in the wrong, without maybe feeling conviction, like, you know, they realize that they've done something wrong. And so we can imply that, you know, obviously they were in sin. But what is the term godly grief and what does Paul mean by it? See, he describes a biblical response to understanding that we're in sin, or a biblical response to conviction. It's godly grief. It's that they felt sorrow and they repented. How do we know this? We'll look at verse 9. When Paul says, for you felt a godly grief, he's explaining what immediately comes before the actions. See, what immediately comes before is he says, you were grieved into repenting. The word for here acts like the word because. Because you felt a godly grief. See, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Now I'm glad I sent it, the letter, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. Describing that, he says, it was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, after reading the earlier verses, we understand what's going on here. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? But there's a new term here, worldly grief, and Paul deciphers between these two types of grief. He says there's worldly and godly. We know both of these types of griefs. Griefs are, are conceived from conviction, from understanding we're in the wrong, and so Paul's whole reason writing this portion of scripture, right, is given in verse 8. It's because he knew he must have made them feel grieved. Well, Paul knew there are only two outcomes to that letter. The first one was to produce the precious fruit from repenting that would lead to salvation with no regret. And the second outcome was them to remain, to allow the thorns of sin to continue growing, which eventually would choke them, producing death. If they had worldly grief, Paul would be heartbroken. He would have regretted his letter. However, if Paul's letter led them to repent, he would have rejoiced, as we know they did. Now, to conclude these verses, right, we understand there are two types of grief. The one God wants us to have is godly grief. Yeah, godly grief. All right, and the second one we're not good to have, right? What's that one? Worldly grief. Awesome, awesome. Recently, I had heard a sermon from a pastor named Francis Chan, and some of you might know him. But in this sermon, he gives the example of um, two characters, and in these two characters, I like to I like to kind of dive into the detail. And the sermon he he released is called "The Thrill of Obedience," and so I encourage you all to go and to listen to it. It's a very very good sermon. Anyway, though, in these two characters that we're going to dive in today, we're going to see if a comparison and contrast, right? So they both were convicted. It's kind of a summary here. They both were convicted. They both understood they're in the wrong, um, and they both experienced grief. And so, so to sum it up this way, both of them are rich, right? They both encountered Jesus. One is told to sell all he has and to give it to the poor. The other one doesn't even need Jesus to tell him. He just gives away half of what he has to the poor. In church, the conclusion here is you can either meet Jesus and immediately give away half, or you can wait till he tells you to give it all away, then you're going to be broke. So do with that what you want. You know, that's up to you. No, but what we honestly see here, guys, is an example of worldly and godly grief, right? So I invite you all to flip over to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. For time's sake, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of sum it up. But I encourage you to read the scripture. I absolutely give you all of my encouragement. Now, the rich young ruler was a wealthy man. He comes before Jesus and he asks him, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, hey, you know, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all the commandments. No, guys, let's be real. He was probably bearing false witness right there. I mean, not one person has kept all the commandments. But I love what Jesus does. See, in his infinite wisdom, Jesus looks at this young man and he says, okay, sell all you have and give it to the poor and come, follow me and you have treasures in heaven. And verse 22 tells us the rich young ruler felt sorrowful 
he walked away and he didn't do that. See, he felt convicted or he felt guilty because he realized he was idolizing his possessions. Nothing changed in his life. He experienced a worldly grief. And the biggest root issue, root, root issue of the rich young ruler's heart was not that he had possessions. I'm not saying it's bad to have possessions. But he had, he had love for his possessions. And he didn't have love for Jesus. You see, Jesus says, you can, you can only have one master. Otherwise, you're going to be faithful to one and unfaithful to the other. You can't have love for me and love for God. How do we know if we love our possessions or if we love Jesus? Well, John Piper, also a pastor, asks a good question. He says, imagine, someone asks you, if you could have heaven with all of your friends and all of your family, your pets, any type of food, any type of drink you want. In fact, you can even have the people you don't want. They don't have to be there, okay? The third, third grade, if the kid stole lunch money from you, kick him out, right? He doesn't have to be there, okay? But he says, if you could have it all, though, but you couldn't have Jesus, would you still want it? And see, what the rich young ruler did here is he said, yeah, I don't really need you, Jesus. In fact, if I could just inherit that possession of eternal life, I'll, I'll be grand. He wanted the gifts instead of the giver. He possessed love for money instead of love for Jesus. You ever notice how when Jesus commands us stuff, he doesn't really command us to like focus on ourselves he doesn't really say, like, hey, you need to spend more time self-loving. And now for people who, who might struggle with self-love, absolutely that's an issue. Like, we have to understand, I pray you understand, that God of all the universe breathed life into you, and he loves you, and he desires for you to come unto repentance. But you notice, though, Jesus often responds with a purpose, with a command for a purpose. See, Jesus notices that we are temporal beings with eternal souls, and oftentimes what we try to do is we try to fill our, our, temporal, our, our temporal beings and with, our, with our eternal souls. What we try to do is we try to fill our eternal souls with temporal things. And we're empty. And we don't become satisfied. And Jesus notices that. And he says, here's the root problem. You're trying to fill yourself with finite things that are going to just pass away. Jesus wants us to come on to obedience to him because he knows he's the only way to the eternal God. To the God who can offer us satisfaction. The God who overflows our cup. Jesus understands we can only be filled with him. I mean, look at his commandments, though. Like, Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Give all you have to the poor. Whatever you did to them, you've done to me. You love me, then obey my commands. See, it's impossible for us to love Jesus and to not love the poor. And don't be so quick to say, oh, that isn't me. I love the poor. In fact, I even gave a water bottle to a homeless guy. And I think I did that twice. That's not the point. Church, Jesus didn't say... To, to the rich and ruler, sell all you have because I'm interested in how many, how many poor people could we feed with that possession. No, Jesus wanted something much greater than that. Jesus wanted their heart yielded to him. I mean, that's why Zacchaeus got away, not got away, but that's why Zacchaeus, you know, only stole half his possessions. Jesus didn't say, oh, you didn't give away them all. He understood that Zacchaeus' heart belonged to Jesus, and Jesus gave him a new heart, strength to obey his commands. Jesus understands that if our hearts are yielded to him, then he can work through us and through the Great Commission by telling all people they will receive living water where they aren't temporarily satisfied, they're eternally fulfilled in Christ. 
It's not a quantitative type of love. How many times can you love someone? It's a qualitative. A qualitative. It's a type of love, a, a life dedicated to loving the poor, a life dedicated to loving God and pursuing, pursuing holiness through the conscious and the subconscious moments of our lives. And what do you mean by that, Stephen? Well, I mean what Jesus says. I mean, look in Scripture, right? In the Old Testament, we look and we see that committing adultery was a physical action. But yet in the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, you understand that you stand before a holy God? And that to you, if you even lust in your heart after someone, you stand condemned of sin? See, Jesus doesn't just want your actions. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He wants to come and to give you and to satisfy you. We can't hold on to our possessions and have Jesus. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. That's not how it works. Jesus says to sell all you have and follow me to the rich young ruler. So we must abandon all and follow him follow his guidance and guys it's 2021 and so i can't believe i'm saying this but it's about every week you turn on the news and you hear something that's unbelievable so what i'm not saying is that jesus is commanding you to abandon your family to abandon your responsibilities and to go and start your own life what i am saying is in your spiritual life i mean first let me clarify that's anti-biblical like the scripture says the man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than the unbeliever and so what Jesus is really getting at here is that in your spiritual life, you have to surrender everything to him. And then that's going to affect your physical life, how you interact with people. And that should be, you know, encouraging to your family to raise up a family that follows Jesus. It's not a quantity type of love. It's a qualitative. Qualitative. I cannot say that word today. It becomes who you are and more specifically who Christ is transforming you into himself. Well, in Luke chapter 19, we get the story of Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus was rich, and he was a chief tax collector. And he couldn't run up to Jesus when he heard Jesus was coming because he was short in stature. He couldn't get through all the crowd. And so instead, he climbs a tree. And what I love about that is Zacchaeus is like, I don't care what I have to do. I want to see Jesus. I'm going to climb the tree if I have to climb the tree. See, there's already a surrender going on in his heart that he understands, like, I need to see this man. So Jesus walks up, he notices the man in the tree, he says, Zacchaeus, come down, today I have to dine in your house, I have to dine, dine at your house, I have to come in and, and to be with you, and so Zacchaeus comes down, welcomes Jesus in, and, and in scripture later on we see that Zacchaeus stood up eventually, and so from my understanding that implies that he was sitting down, and so Zacchaeus is sitting down, and it's like he's just being around Jesus, he starts to feel grief for the sins, the grief for the way that he has defrauded people. And so Zacchaeus stands up and he proclaims, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give away, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I repay fourfold. And Jesus' response says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house today. It's as if Zacchaeus, while he was sitting there, was asked by the Lord through his conviction. It's like, if you could have heaven with everything but I wasn't there, would you want it? It's like, do you love your possessions, Zacchaeus, or do you love me? Are you going to obey me? And Zacchaeus' response is, I've tasted it all. I'm rich. So what? I don't want this. Jesus, you are my heaven. Zacchaeus understood, and he responded with a godly sorrow. When I read these stories, and more specifically the story of the rich young ruler, I have to ask myself, what would have happened if Jesus went back to the rich young ruler every single week? He would run up to Jesus and be like, Hey, Jesus, how can I hear an eternal life? Jesus would respond, you know, he kept all the commands. Yeah, I've kept all the commands. Okay, so all you have. Follow me. And the rich young ruler, ruler's response 
would be a responsive worldly sorrow. He would walk away. He wouldn't change. I mean, think how absurd that is. Like, Jesus was on earth for three years. That's 156 weeks. Every single week, Jesus comes up to this man, and he tells him, and the rich young ruler doesn't change. He just walks away sad. And see, this is exactly what Paul was worried about the Corinthian church. He was worried that their, their grieving didn't lead to any change. It didn't lead to fruit. He thought they're just grieving until unto death. It's a worldly type of grief. Church, isn't this exactly what some of us do? Some of us have been coming to church for more than three years. We've never missed a sermon. We've heard more than 156 convicting messages, and we still haven't changed. Instead, we walk away sad with a worldly grief. We're grieved. We weep together. We cry together. And guys, Satan is happy with that. Satan's glad when we gather together, when we talk about how convicting, oh, the most convicting message this past week, and I'm guilty of it. I've done it myself. No way am I any better than anyone else here. But we gather together, we cry, and we weep together. And and Satan's happy with that because then we're doing what James 1 says. We're deceiving ourselves. See, we're being hearers of the word, but we're not actually doing anything about it. Like a man who looks looks himself in the mirror and walks away and instantly forgets what he looks like. That's what we do. We have worldly grief. We remain in our sin, and Paul says it produces death. Guys, there are four ways we, we usually produce a worldly grief from commands and convictions. The first one, procrastination. If anybody has ever messaged me in the course of their life, you would know I'm a procrastinator. You can message me three paragraphs. I will read every single word. I will reread the words, maybe even twice, to really make sure I understand what you're saying. And then I'll say, yeah, I'll respond later. And then later will come, and I'll remember, right? And then I'll say, I'll respond later. Like, it's, it's, it's a really big character flaw in me. What's really bad is when your mom messaged you or your manager messaged you or your friend who says any prayer messaged you and you read what they're going through and you didn't respond. But not many things are worse than when you're sitting at the coffee shop, you're studying, and your mom calls you. You answer the phone. Did you get my text? Uh, yeah, because you slowly start remembering. Yeah, I did it again. And she asks you, oh, so you just didn't respond to my text. I had intentions to, like, you know, like it doesn't really do anything there. And, and what I'm reminded of when I, when I think of that is how Pastor Bob told the youth group a few weeks ago, good intentions do not equal actions. How many times do we read the word? Do we pray to God? Do we gather together? And we procrastinate every single thing we know the Lord's telling us to do. Everything we know needed to change, we just procrastinated. Guys, we don't know how long we have. Like, when I was praying earlier, I was saying that I could, I could die preaching the sermon. Like, my breath could be taken from me. Your breath could be taken from, from you, God forbid. But the point is, we don't, we don't know how long we have. And so if God has told us something to do, I can guarantee you, you don't want to come before him. And he says, hey, hey, Stephen, hey, whatever your name is, did you ever change what we talked about last week? And you say, I had plans to. See, procrastination might eventually result in change. But the point is, procrastination is ultimately your choice to at least temporarily remain in your sin. And we know that leads to death. Number two, justification. Oftentimes we try to justify our procrastination. I'll give another example of me because I'm also guilty of this. 
My parents asked me to clean the bathroom about a week and a half ago. Now, I work at Chick-fil-A and I work about 30 hours a week. If you all want a chicken sandwich, not today, but tomorrow you can come by and it'll be my pleasure to serve you. And so, as I'm taking two summer courses and trying to balance work, my parents asked me to clean the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it later on that night. And so the night comes and I remember and then I'm like, I have a lot of studying I have to do, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and, well, I remembered. And in fact, I was actually studying when I remembered and I started to think about what it would entail to clean the bathroom. And I'm like, I have to get a, you know, off the paper towels, cleaning supplies, which probably do the mirror last because then it's gonna leave like a smudge if I hit it while I'm cleaning other things. And I'm like, are there any towels in my bathroom? I have to put the towels in the washer. What if the washer's occupied? I have to take care of that. So like the whole, the whole thing is I'm procrastinating, but I'm justifying it because then at the end of it, I said, no, I don't have time to do that. See, I'm too busy studying. See, church, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, in work, in school, whatever it is, with our families and friends, they ask us to do a favor. Sorry, I can't do it this week. Now, I'm not saying that every single time we're asked to do something, we have to drop all we have and go do what someone asks us to do, right? I mean, we have responsibilities, we have priorities, we have to prioritize things, right? But my question is, if we've done that casually and constantly in our relationships with people, shouldn't we at least ask God the ways we've justified our disobedience to him? See, Paul says, again, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, mortally grief produces death. The truth is, we can justify anything we want to. We can justify why we suppress what God told us to do, what we know is the right thing to do, and we can justify it all we want. I mean, there's literally nothing you can't justify. We realize that refusing to change from disobedience is remaining in sin. For the believer, when the Holy Spirit reminds us of our righteousness in Christ, and then we recognize and realize the, the ways we've fallen short in the sin in our lives, we become sorrowful and rightly so, but that sorrow is going to give us grief, and that grief will either respond with, Jesus, you can have it all. Jesus, I love you. Or we're going to respond with, oh, Jesus, I actually rather have my possessions. I actually love my possessions. I don't quite need you, really, Jesus. See, guys, that's ultimately, ultimately what we say. You can cut it, slice it, package it, however you want to, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we're choosing to love possessions rather than the Son of God. When we sin, we're ultimately sinning against God. And guys, I want to make an important note here. The rich young ruler in Zacchaeus' salvation was not dependent on how much they had versus how much they gave. And this is why, I mean, look at Zacchaeus. He received salvation, gave away half, and a little bit more than half, probably a lot more, because it says he, after gave, giving away half, then repaid fourfold. But the point is, it's not that he gave away some, and that's why he received it. The point is, there are two men who met Jesus, and when they met Jesus, they understood what it meant to follow him. It's not if we complete these actions and salvation is given to us. It's how salvation is ours as a free gift of God when we repent and hail King Jesus as Lord of our lives. When we begin following Jesus, though, what are we called to do? Care for the widow. Care for the orphan. Care for the least of these. And church, please hear me. If we know to do good, we choose not to do it, then to us it is sin. We're commanded to give away our convenience. We're commanded to lay up for ourselves not treasures on earth, but treasures on heaven. We're commanded to love the immigrant and not revile and curse him. We're commanded to care for the orphan. We're commanded to make sure the widows receive their daily bread. We're commanded to live a pure and undefiled religion before God Almighty. And we're commanded to go and to tell the gospel to the ends of the earth. And behold, Christ will be, us, be, be with us. And church, please hear me. If we respond to these commands with indifference or even with conviction that does not result in change, then by God's holy word, we are damned to produce death. 
what the scripture says. And I realize that's a strong conclusion. And I realize I'm only 19. I'm just standing up here talking to a bunch of people. And I have no clue the things you've been through. I have no idea what it's like to try to respond to to be responsible for a family, to try to try to balance the responsibilities of making sure your spouse knows that you love them and caring for your kids and making sure you're there for them and you're at every one of their games or club meetings, whatever it is. I understand I don't I don't get that. All I'm trying to do is to proclaim the teachings, the commandments, the warnings and the promises of God given to us through scripture by men who spoke as the Holy Spirit moved them. I'm trying to understand what's God's purpose for my life. And what he says in scripture is clear, and it applies to me, and it applies to everyone in here. It doesn't mean I have it all figured out. Guys, I still don't even know what college I'm going to in the fall. I'm supposed to be going to a different college in the fall. I have no clue what's going to happen. I'm still asking and seeking, and there's a way I've missed the mark in, in interpreting the holy word of God and interpreting this Bible. If there's any part in here that I missed, then I ask you to please come and show me, because I don't... Guys, who in their right mind actually wants to give away everything they have? I mean, let's be real. Do you really think I want to give away and deny my flesh? No, but the thing is, Jesus says, if you would just understand the treasure that I want to give you, the purpose, how you'll be fulfilled. I want to preach Jesus, not my own ideologies, my own ways. If we are feeling convicted and if we're realizing there's sin in our lives, feeling indifferent, then I beg you to please have a godly grief. And I even ask you to please pray for me to have a godly grief as I go throughout my life. See, scripture goes against our American culture. Growing up, there's a funny saying my dad would say, and to me it sums up what the American culture is. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Right? Like, that's that idea. Like, that's like what our culture tells us to do. To grab, grab, take and get all for me, me, me. And guys, I want to be clear. I love this country. I am so blessed to be in this country. If you have served, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for your family. The time you spent that you won't get back because you served for a greater purpose in yourself is a beautiful thing. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for their brother. Guys, we're citizens of heaven before we're citizens of America. We need to realize it should be expectant that Jesus doesn't fit nice and neatly inside of our categories and our desires of the American dream. Stephen, you've been talking for a while. Why don't you show us some scripture to back up your point? I would love to. Glad you asked. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. This is Jesus speaking of the final judgment of all of the world. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will continue on and separate the other goats and say, hey, depart from me. Do you realize how Jesus separates them? People who clothed the naked, gave drink to the thirsty, to the people who didn't. It isn't because these people had better deeds than the other. It's because they obeyed Jesus. They obeyed his commands. They learned of the commands of God, and rather they felt indifference, conviction, or sadness, they made the decision to obey Christ. Because Christ says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Well, the third reason we often experience worldly grief is perturbation. And the definition of this word is anxiety or mental uneasiness. And guys, I understand. It's not an easy thing, not an easy thought to give it all away. Someone's probably thinking, hey, don't really, 19. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, then Jesus understands, and Jesus gets it. See, in Luke chapter 22, if you mind flipping over there for me, or Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 22, Jesus starts to say, you know, don't be anxious, don't fret, don't be perturbed. Consider the ravens, look at the lilies, your heavenly Father cares for them. You are of so much more value. And then look down at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not fear, I want to give you the kingdom. But you have to want me more than you love money. You have to want me more than you want your possessions. Well, like Paul, I stand here hoping this message and praying this message has not grieved you in a worldly way. Guys, I stand here equally as convicted, stand here equally as guilty of ways I haven't responded in a godly grief. If I stood here proclaiming to have been perfected or to be any, bad, any, any better than anyone, then guys, I would stand here as a hypocrite. I even feel like a hypocrite preaching this, to be honest with you. My prayer is not that you would remember me or my words. My prayer is that you would be convicted with a godly grief, one that leads to salvation. So there may be some repentance, and maybe for some it's the first time. Maybe you've never repented. Maybe you're starting to realize that you need to repent. See, for those who are maybe repenting for the first time, we talked about earlier how sin leads to death, right? Paul talks about sin leading to death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Christ Jesus. It's, it's eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6, 23. See, it's a free gift. You can't earn it. You have to love Jesus. You have to obey him. To, you have to confess of your sins, repent, and believe. And see, in, in, in Scripture, we see people who believe. They lived a life for Jesus. They didn't just die for Jesus. They lived for Jesus. That's what it meant to believe. You have to believe Jesus. 
See, it's like kind of in the court of law, we come before a, a just and holy God who's a judge, and he looks at you and he says, I love you, but you have broken my law, and because I'm just, you have to have a fine against you. And there's no one who can pay her a fine. And so God sends his son, and Jesus comes bursting through the court, and he says, hey, I'll pay your fine, I'll pay the fine, but will you accept it? And that's the question of the gospel, will you accept the fine, and will you follow him? For others, maybe you're repenting from the ways you have loved your possessions more than the creator. Ultimately, my prayer is that this godly grief would be repentance, leading to just one less orphan who doesn't know a mother or father, one less widow who's neglected, one less immigrant who's treated by an alien, who's treated as an alien by the very people who claim that Christ came for all, one less man starving, one less woman wondering how she would care for the baby that's inside of her stomach, one less naked child digging in the trash, one less sorrowful and unchanged person, and ultimately, guys, one less son or daughter of hell. The peace that comes from knowing you're obeying the holy God of all the world. My prayer is that you would join in with Zacchaeus and have worldly grief, and with complete joy, you'd say, hey, you can take it all. I just want Jesus. He's the heaven you've been longing for. Some of you may have noticed I haven't listed the fourth reason, and that's because only you know it. What's the reason why you have decided to respond with worldly grief? What's the reason why you've chosen to remain disobedient to what God's convicted you of and told you of and told you to change from? Disobedience, choosing to remain in a worldly grief, ultimately leads to death. Would you please pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. God, Paul's prayer for us in Ephesians 3 is that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That us being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge because that's the fullness of God when we understand that. So God, my prayer is for the people here. My prayer is for me, Lord. And maybe for people here you are thinking of other people, I think we all, we all need to look at ourselves first and foremost without a doubt. But God, maybe some people are even looking at others and thinking, man, this message reminds me of them. And Lord, maybe we pray, we're not judge and, and revile each other, but maybe we pray that they would understand your love. Maybe we go to war in the prayer room and pray for these people. Lord, I pray for the people here and I pray for my own heart. You would help us to understand your love and to realize, God, we want to respond with a godly grief when leading to repentance, sacrificing all to you. Reveal to us the ways we've justified our disobedience to you. And would you please graciously give, give us strength to respond with godly sorrow that leads to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.